Hello, everyone, and welcome to your October TNTC Plus bonus episode, and thanks so much for being here. As always, if you have a request for a case you'd like us to cover on an episode of TNTC Plus or a regular feed episode, you can reach out to us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We do prioritize cases that come to us directly from family members or loved ones close to a case, but are more than happy to receive suggestions from everyone. All right, let's go ahead and get right into tonight's case. So tonight's episode is a bit unique for us, as there isn't a ton of background information available to us online for either the victim or the perpetrator of the crime. In fact, this case is still ongoing and has been bogged down with delays. There was a verdict in this trial, and while we were researching this case, the sentencing hearing was also delayed, and as such, the conclusion is open-ended. We will add the sentencing at the end of this episode if a decision is made um, before we upload. We feel it's important to cover this case regardless as a family and a community has lost someone who by all accounts made countless lives that he touched a little bit brighter. We also wanted to use this episode as a way to highlight crimes of elder abuse in Canada. Getting solid data and numbers of elder abuse is quite challenging as it's not a really a well-researched area. However, there is some recent information on the StatsCan website. According to the General Social Survey on Canadian Safety, there were about 128,000 senior victims of violence in Canada in 2019. According to the Uniform Crime Reporting Survey, the rate of police-reported violence against seniors increased 22% between 2010 and 2020, with the largest increase observed in the past five years among senior men. In 2020, nearly two-thirds, or 64%, of senior victims of police-reported violence were victimized by someone other than a family member. Among senior men who were homicide victims, two-thirds were killed by a non-family member, most commonly a friend at 30%, followed by a stranger at 20%, or an acquaintance at 17%. So with that data tonight, we're going to be talking about the first-degree murder case of 75-year-old Ronald Warsfold in St. Albert, Alberta. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and some court documents, As an additional content warning, this episode contains details of a brutal homicide. So where is St. Albert? Well, located just 26 minutes outside of Edmonton to the northwest, you will find the city of St. Albert. St. Albert was originally settled as a Métis community and has since become the second largest city in the metropolitan region of Edmonton. The area that is now St. Albert has a rich indigenous history, with the Cree and Métis people being the traditional inhabitants. The Sturgeon River Valley provided an abundant source of food and resources for these indigenous communities. But in 1861, the European settlers arrived. Roman Catholic missionaries, particularly Father Albert Lacombe, established a mission in the area in 1861. This mission, initially called St. Albert, later gave the city its name. With these settlers came smallpox, which would go on to kill 320 of the 900 residents. St. Albert did have two residential schools in the past, 
one called St. Albert Indian Residential School, which operated from 1873 to 1948 on Mission Hill within the city. The other, Edmonton Indian Residential School, was around six kilometers east of downtown St. Albert and operated from 1924 to 1968. Sadly, 53 students died while attending these schools. To promote healing and reconciliation, a healing garden was opened on September 15, 2017, as part of the truth and reconciliation process between the city of St. Albert and survivors of the residential school system. Today, St. Albert has a population of roughly 70,000 people, and its website says the following. St. Albert, Alberta's botanical art city, is known for its small community feel and friendly character, which have been preserved while the city has grown to be Alberta's sixth largest. Calling St. Albert home is one of the best decisions you will ever make. St. Albert takes pride in its low unemployment rates, low crime rates, top-notch schools, high-quality healthcare services, beautiful parks and trails, and well-equipped recreational facilities. Looking at the crime rates in St. Albert on areavibes.com, we can see that the overall crime rate in St. Albert is 11% lower than the national average, with violent crime being an impressive 30% lower than the national average. However, on the night of July 7, 2017, the city of St. Albert would be rocked by a brutal murder. 75-year-old Ronald Worsfold was a building manager of an apartment building at 75 Mission Avenue in St. Albert called Meadowview Manor. And by all accounts, Ronald was a kind man who often gave people breaks on rent if he knew that they were going through a rough financial patch. Ronald had been managing the apartment building for about 30 years. He also worked as an usher at Rogers Place in Edmonton and at a gas station in St. Albert for many, many years. According to Ronald's daughter, Sandy, in the National Post, she stated that people would go out of their way to go to the gas station Ronald worked at just to see him. She went on to say, People went there to see him because he brightened their days. He was a man who touched so many people with his smile and his enthusiasm. Ronald had previously worked as an engineer at CN Rail, and right across the street from the apartment building that he managed was a grain elevator and train tracks. His son Darren said to the Edmonton Journal in 2017 that the trains going by made his father feel at home. Ronald was truly as nice as they come, according to those that knew him. His daughter Sandy said the following in an article in the St. Albert Gazette, quote, He's just very kind. He's a helping person. He would help anybody for anything. You call, he would be there. He was such a strong member of the St. Albert community, volunteering for various things. He was just that type of guy. Also living in the apartment building at 75 Mission Avenue was 28-year-old Beryl Masula. Now, there's not a whole lot of information available online about Beryl Masula in the time leading up to the events that unfolded on July 7th, 2017. But we do know that Beryl was a single mother who is alleged to have struggled with substance misuse disorder as well as some mental health issues. According to an article from Press Reader in 2017, Beryl had a feature done on her back in 2015 in the Calgary Herald after completing a 12-week program at Alcove Addiction Recovery for Women. Court records also show that Beryl had previous assault convictions, one from 2011 and another from 2016. Now, Beryl and Ronald got to know each other over time after Ronald made repairs in her ground floor apartment, and according to her, with time, a friendship developed. This was around September of 2016. Making things more complicated in this case is the fact that Beryl has changed the details in her testimony many times. 
but let's go over her version of events that occurred on July 7, 2017. Now, due to the amount of lies that have tainted this trial, telling the story has proved difficult, so we've decided to present the case in two parts, if you will. First, we will tell Beryl's account of what happened. As stated, she has changed this story many times. And after we will tell, uh, after we tell her version, we will present the Crown's version of events. July 7th was a Friday in 2017, and in the evening hours, Beryl and Ronald were talking about a planned trip to Calgary for the following day, and the two also planned to go for a drive together that evening. While on that drive, the two stopped at a local sex shop. When asked about this trip to the sex store, Beryl states that she was going through a difficult time when it came to her self-esteem, and Ronald suggested that she go get something nice for herself. According to Beryl, this was her first time ever in a sex store, and she was feeling a bit nervous and awkward. She ended up leaving with a pair of underwear. Now, as we have stated, Beryl has flip-flopped on numerous things throughout this true crime case, and one of those things happens to be the exact nature of her relationship with Ronald Warsfold. Initially, she told law enforcement that the two had a sexual relationship, but then she walked that back when the case ended up in court and said that the relationship had been purely platonic. As per Beryl's account, the two went back to Ronald's apartment, where they spent the remainder of the evening drinking wine, taking Ativan, and watching television. Later, her boyfriend, Robert Rafters, called Ronald's landline, and subsequently Ronald went to bed while Beryl stayed up drinking wine and watching TV. At some point later that night, Beryl claims to have heard a commotion in the apartment. Beryl and Ronald had apparently been worried as there had been a few break-ins recently, so Beryl left the apartment to search for any potential intruder, but found no one. She also mentioned that someone had been shining a light into Ronald's apartment, and this led the two of them to take some of Ronald's valuables, including sports memorabilia and a coin collection, to a storage locker earlier that night while on their drive. After leaving Ronald's apartment to search for the alleged intruder, Beryl found herself locked out of the apartment building. She noticed a man smoking on his balcony and asked him to help her get back in. She also asked this man if he had anything to help level her out. At this point, she was likely feeling the effects of both the wine and the Ativan, both of which have sedative qualities. The man she was speaking with had been drinking beer, using cocaine, and playing video games all night, so he offered her a line of coke. Now, according to Beryl, this man attempted to make sexual advances, which she says she rejected. She went back to Ronald's apartment at this point, where she said she went to sleep and was awoken the next morning by knocking and yelling at Ronald's front door. Beryl looked out the window and noticed Ronald's daughter, Stacy, in the parking lot. According to Beryl, she went to wake Ronald up, but found him unresponsive in his bed and noticed a stab wound on his neck, as well as blood in his hairline. It's at this time Beryl says she panicked and told Stacy that Ronald wasn't there and he had gone for a walk after they had gotten into a fight that morning. Stacy told Beryl to get her things and leave her father's apartment, so Beryl rushed around the apartment gathering her things, preparing to leave Ronald's suite. During this time, Stacy was waiting outside in the parking lot, waiting for Beryl to leave her father's unit. This is when Beryl's boyfriend, Robert Rafters, arrived. Beryl let Robert in and alleges that he told her if she left things the way they were, she would end up in prison. She claims that with Robert's help, the two loaded Ronald's body inside a Rubbermaid tote bin. 
Reportedly, Robert instructed her to drive around before heading to a rural property near Devon, where a celebration was underway to mark the end of a friend's time on parole. During this drive, Beryl made several stops, including a hotel in Morinville, where she states that her luggage was tampered with. Her assertion is that while she was making a call within a nearby restaurant, an unidentified individual deposited extra suitcases alongside her belongings. These additional cases allegedly contained knives, a hammer, and various bloody items from Ronald's apartment. Later on that evening, Beryl said she arrived at the party, and during the party, she claimed that her boyfriend Robert, and the man who was celebrating not being on parole anymore, took the bin with Ronald's body and disposed of it. When the police spoke to Beryl on July 9th, which is the day after the party, she claimed to have no knowledge of where Ronald was or what could have happened to him. Later, also on July 9th, 2017, police discovered Ronald's body in a Rubbermaid container on a rural property in Parkland County near Stony Plain. Subsequently, police arrested Beryl Musula and charged her with first-degree murder and indignity to a body. She pleaded guilty to the indignity to a body charge, but not guilty to first-degree murder, sending this case to trial. So to summarize here, Beryl claims that after a night of hanging out with Ronald, she went to sleep. Then she woke up after hearing a noise, possibly an intruder. She then leaves the apartment in the middle of the night and does not find the intruder. She then comes back in and goes to bed, and she wakes up when Ronald's daughter came to the door concerned about her dad. Beryl then finds Ronald dead in his bedroom, then lies to Ronald's daughter and asks some friends to dispose of Ronald's body. And, according to her, they did. This is her story. Essentially, Ronald was randomly killed by a stranger, but rather than call the police, she hid his body. This is a pretty unbelievable story. So we're now going to go through the Crown's version of events. The trial in this case would be repeatedly postponed, and when we say repeatedly, we, we mean it. In fact, this case didn't go to court until five years and nine months after Ronald was murdered. And this, of course, includes the, you know, the big COVID delay in 2020 that stacked cases back. But the main reason for these constant delays was the accused herself. She was unable to hold on to legal representation as she consistently fired the lawyers that she hired or the lawyers that were appointed to her. Beryl would end up representing herself in court, she's not a lawyer, after firing seven different lawyers. There was a lawyer appointed to act as a friend of the court to ensure that the trial was fair. The Crown prosecutors in Alberta were Patricia Hankinson and John Schmidt, and they were in charge of prosecuting this case. The trial would finally start on April 25th, 2023. Now, just to repeat, Ronald was murdered in 2017. The prosecution's version of events and the police investigation were much different than Beryl's story. When detailing the first few days of this case at the trial, the police stated the following. Ronald's daughter reported her father missing on July 8, 2017. She mentioned that Beryl had been in the apartment with her father, so the constable attempted to reach Beryl via the phone, but he failed to make contact. The next day, on July 9th, at 22 minutes after midnight, the constable phoned Beryl's boyfriend, Robert Rafters, in an attempt to find and talk to Beryl. 
Robert answered this call, and when the police identified themselves, he passed the phone to Beryl, who spoke with the officer for about five minutes. During the call, she admitted that she had been in Ronald's apartment in the evening prior, that the two had been intimate and had been drinking. She said that an argument had occurred and that she left in Ronald's car, and when she returned the next morning, Ronald was not in the apartment. It was at this point that the officers asked Beryl for her current location, at which point she abruptly ended the phone call. When the police attempted to call the number back numerous times, calls were ignored and went straight to voicemail. Later that same day, police asked Robert Rafter's mother to bring Beryl and Robert into the RCMP detachment for questioning, and she agreed. Robert and Beryl were interviewed separately, and in Beryl's interview, which lasted just under three hours, she said she was, quote, dealing with my emotions and I just feel like I need to talk. She mentioned that she had felt both physically and mentally exhausted, lost, and had been drinking. When the officers asked her to expand on this, Beryl said that she experiences depression, anxiety, and a sleeping disorder which causes psychosis. She had not used her prescribed medication for roughly two weeks. She admitted using cocaine and methamphetamine for about four days before the interview and had consumed about a glass and a half of alcohol on the interview date, but agreed that she was not currently drunk. Just hours after the interview wrapped at 3.01 p.m., the police received a tip from a witness. The tip was that Beryl had brought a body to the witness's rural property on the previous day and that the body was in a Rubbermaid tote. The witness also said that Beryl had been the one who killed the person inside the Rubbermaid. Finally, at 5.50 p.m. on July 9th, police arrested Beryl. In her first post-arrest interview, Beryl began to introduce her boyfriend, Robert Rafters, as someone she was afraid of. She explained that she and Robert were in a relationship and characterized his behavior as controlling, manipulative, and violent. Allegedly, he had recently threatened to kill her. Beryl had periodically sought refuge from him in a woman's shelter. She agreed with the interviewing officer's comment that he has a, quote, fairly strong hold on you. It's at this point that police reveal that Robert is simultaneously being interviewed in another room. The officer asks Beryl what she thinks Robert might be telling the police, to which she responds, I don't care, all that comes out of his mouth is always a damn lie. In her conversation with the officer, Beryl conveyed that her life took a turn for the worse in March 2017, coinciding with her relationship with Robert Rafters. During the trial, Robert Rafters stated that he and Beryl had been in a relationship for approximately four months at the time of Ronald's death. However, Beryl informed police that although Robert had believed that they were dating, her intention had always been to maintain a platonic friendship. She claimed that Robert Rafters displayed possessive tendencies, frequently raising his voice and employing manipulative behavior. Additionally, Beryl informed the officer that during that period, she had experienced times of staying in and leaving women's shelters. She had also disclosed that she had sought mental health treatment and support following a separate incident of sexual assault by another individual. When the officer posed a question about her past, Beryl also acknowledged that she had engaged in sex work. When speaking to the police, Beryl began to change the details of her story. This time, she said that she and Ronald had been having a sexual relationship since roughly a month after she moved into the building. 
She alleges that she was afraid of both her boyfriend, Robert, as well as Ronald Worsfold. She also alleges that Ronald forced her into sexual acts that she wasn't comfortable with, including handcuffing her and leaving her restrained for extended periods of time, which left her feeling humiliated and terrified. Beryl said that Robert found out about her sexual relationship with Ronald, and out of jealousy, he directed her to kill Ronald. She states that Robert gave her Ativan to drug him with, and if she didn't follow through with his orders, that he would kill her instead. Her direct quote to police was, He tells me that he's going to kill me too, and he's going to get rid of my body too. She then recounted that she placed pills in Ronald's drink, causing him to fall asleep. And according to her statement, Rafters then made his way from his residence to the apartment and put a pillow over Ronald's head. However, he subsequently demanded that Beryl be the one to actually murder Ronald. Eventually, during the post-arrest police interview, Beryl confessed to killing Ronald Borsfeld, and when asked about the weapons that had been mentioned, which included a hammer and a knife, she admitted to using both of them. When it was Robert Rafter's turn to testify in court, he was adamant that he had never set foot inside Ronald's apartment and that he had a number of chronic health issues that would prevent him from being able to walk from his place of residence over to the apartment as Beryl had stated. His mother and a friend of his also provided the jury with an alibi for Robert for that evening. They stated that he had been home the entire time except for a trip to the corner store with his friend that night. If you remember... Robert Rafters was present at the apartment on the day after Ronald was killed and was seen helping Beryl carry the Rubbermaid container from the apartment down some stairs and into a taxi. The taxi driver actually had to help Robert get the container into the cab. In court, Robert said that the container was heavier than shoes and heavier than bricks, but it didn't seem like it was what it was. Robert even mentioned that he had joked about it on the day, asking Beryl if there were bricks in the container or something. It turned out that Robert and the witness who initially called police to inform them he had found a body on his property had been in contact with each other as well. When testifying in court, the witness told the story of what happened on July 9th, 2017. He was moving the Rubbermaid container when it slipped from his grasp. When it hit the ground... The lid popped open and an arm came out. He remembered freaking out and calling Robert Rafters. He told Robert, she did it. She actually did it. There's a body in that Rubbermaid. You need to turn around and turn her in. It was after this phone call to Robert that the witness called the police to inform them there was a body on his property. The version of events that the Crown prosecution presented at trial were in contrast with what Beryl said happened. They alleged that it was Beryl who drugged Ronald with Ativan, and when he appeared to be overdosing, she then proceeded to stab him and bludgeon him with a hammer until he died. She then put his nude body inside the blue Rubbermaid container. The Crown alleges that after killing Ronald and disposing of his body inside the Rubbermaid bin, she attempted to clean up the crime scene. She flipped his mattress in an effort to hide the bloodstain, cut out a section of carpet, and gathered other incriminating items to bring with her when she left the apartment. Found inside the Rubbermaid container with the body were a pair of magenta-colored metal handcuffs without a key. There was also duct tape attached to a plastic strip that was wrapped around Ronald's ankles. 
Forensic evidence was also presented at trial, including two small containers holding fingernail clippings collected from both the left and right hands of Ronald Worsfold at the autopsy. Additionally, one exhibit retrieved from the side pocket of Beryl's black suitcase consisted of a pair of sizable shears roughly 10 inches in length, featuring black handles and bearing traces of carpet fibers. When it came to Beryl's story about hearing an intruder in the apartment in the middle of the night, the Crown urged the jury to dismiss this claim. Crown Prosecutor Schmidt contended that Beryl's account of witnessing a stranger in Ronald's apartment lacked coherence, and so did her subsequent actions afterwards. He questioned why, after supposedly chasing an unknown person out of her apartment, she would choose to use cocaine with a neighbor instead of checking in on her friend who was sleeping. Speaking of this neighbor, this story varied from the version of events that Beryl told. The neighbor, who lived on the third floor of the apartment building, had spent most of that evening playing video games, drinking beer, and using cocaine. He recalls that around midnight, he heard a woman crying in the parking lot, so he got her attention. She told him that she had locked her keys inside of her apartment and she couldn't get back inside the building. As the two continued their conversation, Beryl mentioned that she was unhappy with the direction her life was going. The neighbor then gave Beryl a beer and offered her some cocaine. They then got into a car and drove to the parking lot of another nearby apartment building where they continued to talk, drink, and do lines of blow. He testified that he thought she seemed pretty sober and just upset about her life. When they got back to the building at Meadowview Manor, Beryl invited the neighbor up to Ronald's apartment. The neighbor initially expressed discomfort about being there without his knowledge, but she assured him that Ronald was away on vacation in Jasper. When he got inside the apartment, he noticed that a dresser had been knocked over and that clothing was strewn around the hallway. He also observed that all of the bedroom doors were closed and he didn't see anyone else inside the apartment. Beryl then asked him if she could go change, at which point she came back out wearing lingerie. The two then engaged in an intimate encounter where she gave him oral sex. When Ronald's daughter Stacy testified in court, her story also differed from the version of events that Beryl had given. Stacy recalled driving by Meadowview Manor on the morning of July 8, 2017. She had been on her way to the beach with her sister-in-law, her son, and two of her son's friends, and as she was driving by, she observed her father's truck in the parking lot. This was odd as her father had reported his truck stolen the week before, and this was unrelated to what happened. And she knew that her father would have called her to tell her that he had found the truck. Stacy tried calling his landline as well as honking her car horn from the parking lot in order to get her father's attention, but there was no response. Eventually, this led her to bang on the front door of his unit, and it was at this time that Beryl's face appeared in the window. Stacy told her to vacate the unit, but Beryl refused and said she was cleaning. Beryl also refused to let Ronald's own daughter into his suite, which obviously raised red flags for Stacy, who then decided she wasn't going to leave the premises until Beryl left the apartment. Stacy waited for hours in the parking lot, and Beryl even threatened to call the police on her at one point, stating that she was harassing her. As the hours went by, people began to arrive in the parking lot alongside Stacy. This was when she observed Beryl taking items from her father's apartment, including the heavy blue Rubbermaid container. When asked in court what Stacy observed in regards to the Rubbermaid, she said the following. 
Beryl was dragging it down the stairs. All you could hear was thud, thud, thud. After Beryl left in a taxi, Stacy entered the apartment where she describes it as weirdly clean. She just felt that things were off. When police entered the unit, they too noticed that things seemed amiss. In fact, one of the officers while on the stand stated, I observed signs of foul play. According to an article from Town & Country Today, the officers testified to the following evidence inside the apartment. The safe door was open, void of contents, and on the bottom was a very bright cherry red stain. The blue linen sheets on the bed were so crisp and new, the creases from the cardboard package liner were still evident. They lifted up the mattress, and on the underside, there was a smear of dried blood that was about seven inches square. It appeared someone was trying to cover up a crime scene. I told the other constable that we were locking the crime scene down as a potential homicide scene. The medical examiner, Bernard Bannock, testified three weeks into the trial, and his findings, according to an article from the St. Albert Gazette, were as follows. The body was not in a body bag, as they normally come to the office, but the body was contained in a Rubbermaid tote container with silver tape. He opened the tote and removed a multicolored comforter and afghan, as well as a white towel. Beneath those, Ronald's nude body was bent at the waist in the 2 by 4 foot container. The victim weighed 128 pounds and was 5 foot 7 inches tall. There was no clothing on his body, his wrists were handcuffed together, and his ankles were bound by silver tape. The deceased was wearing a wristwatch and a yellow metal chain. The jury had to view the autopsy photos, and the medical examiner was careful to warn them that the body was not fresh and was in a state of decomposition. The photos showed reddening on the victim's back that was due to post-mortem lividity where blood had pooled after blood stopped circulating. The part of Ronald's naked back that was closest to the edge of the tub showed this lividity, which is caused by gravity from being on his back for between 6 to 12 hours following his death. Dr. Bannock said he was on his back for a period of time that would allow lividity before he was put in that tote. So that means that he was on his back for a period of time, then placed inside of the tote. And that period of time could be 6 to 12 hours. The outer and middle layers of his skin had begun to separate, and there were signs of blistering and skin slippage related to decomposition and bacterial action. He said that it appeared that postmortem rigidity was minimally present to absent and that it had occurred and was going away as decomposition advanced. Uh, most people know this as rigor mortis or rigor. When it came to the injuries on the body, Bannock highlighted that Ronald had three lacerations from blunt force trauma on his scalp, which were forceful enough to cause the scalp to split open. One of these blows to the head caused his skull to fracture. However, in Bannock's opinion, Ronald was alive at the time the blunt force trauma was sustained. He went on to say, The bleeding suggests blood pressure and a beating heart. There was bleeding all around the wound tracks, so Ronald's heart was still beating at the time they were inflicted. There were also three distinct stab wounds on Ronald's body. The first, located on the right side of his neck, measured approximately 1.6 centimeters in length. Fortunately, it missed any major arteries, coming to a halt behind the right side of the thyroid cartilage, commonly known as the Adam's apple. Another stab wound, positioned on the upper right chest, just below the collarbone, reached a depth of 6 centimeters. 
It did not breach the chest cavity or involve any significant blood vessels. The fatal stab wound was a deep thrust that penetrated over 9 centimeters into Ronald's lower abdomen, slightly to the left of the belly button. It pierced two loops of his lower bowel before slicing through tissue and severing approximately 60% of his left ielic artery, which extends from the aorta into the left leg. This particular injury was highly fatal due to its propensity to cause severe bleeding, and its location made it challenging to apply effective first aid, even if it was administered properly. Dr. Bannock noted that in all three stab wounds, one end appeared sharp while the other was blunt. He emphasized the significance of this detail, indicating that wounds like these are typically caused by single-edge knives. The photographic evidence also revealed that the deceased had sustained two noticeable black eyes. Beryl, who was not a lawyer, was representing herself after firing multiple sets of lawyers, and she cross-examined the medical examiner and asked, My question is, could the black eyes we saw in the pictures be as a result of a fight between two individuals before the death? The medical examiner responded by saying that yes, they could have. However, a black eye doesn't always mean that a person sustained a blow directly to their eye socket. The Crown Prosecutor asked the medical examiner for another medical reason that could explain the black eyes, to which he said that a strike to the head or scalp would have also resulted in blood tracking down to the eye sockets. Another element of evidence that was revealed at trial were odd Google searches that Beryl had made on Ronald's home computer on the night that he was killed. They included, How am I sure I won't walk away empty-handed? I can't leave. I have to do this tonight. I don't have a gun, and he is heavy. I have to do it now. And where are the hidden keys? A witness who was at the party that Beryl and her boyfriend went to on the night after the homicide with the Rubbermaid container stated that even though he had never met Beryl prior to the party, her behavior stood out as odd to him. He observed her engaging in what he referred to as irrational behavior, things like changing her outfit numerous times and showering multiple times at the residence. The following morning, as the party was coming to an end, Beryl and two men, one of whom was the friend for whom the party had been arranged to celebrate the end of their parole, departed the residence. The witness would later observe them returning from a wooded area located at the rear of the rural Parkland County property. The prosecution argued that it was at this time that Beryl, with the help of others, disposed of the Rubbermaid container on the rural property. While the Crown isn't required to prove motive, prosecutors suggest she drugged Ronald for financial gain, noting Beryl visited a storage unit where Ronald stored a collection of sports memorabilia shortly before her arrest. They also said she may have drugged him to avoid having sex with Ronald. The trial lasted for nearly nine weeks, two weeks longer than was originally anticipated. It took the jury just two hours of deliberation before they finally reached their decision. They found Beryl Masula guilty of first-degree murder. But this story isn't over yet. Beryl hired yet another lawyer to represent her for the sentencing portion of the trial. Now, this lawyer's name is Caitlin Dick, and she argued that she needs more time to properly represent Beryl for sentencing. The judge, who was no doubt frustrated at this point after dealing with nothing but delays from Beryl, reluctantly granted the delay in sentencing. 
Caitlin Dick contended that Beryl, who had acted as her own legal counsel throughout the entire trial, required legal representation during the sentencing phase. She asserted that several complex issues needed to be addressed, including a charter issue related to Beryl not having received a bail hearing within the prescribed 24-hour time frame. Additionally, Caitlin Dick argued that the facts presented during the sentencing could potentially impact any forthcoming parole decisions. Thankfully, the judge has warned Beryl that regardless of whether she has legal representation or not, that the sentencing hearing will be held in September. He also said, quote, I do so with considerable disappointment and reluctance, and I expect those emotions are felt even more keenly by some of those persons present today, referring to members of Ronald's family who have been put through years of agony with this case and its constant delays in theatrics. Stacy, Ronald's daughter, said the following outside the courtroom. The delays just continue the grief process for the family. We've been in prison for six years along with her because you are not allowed to complete your grieving. Doing the trial six years later just puts you back into the grieving. At some point, we have to be allowed to complete our grieving, and this charade of continual delays is just bullshit. Ronald's family doesn't feel that Beryl showed any signs of remorse or guilt throughout the entire process. Beryl is facing a life sentence without the possibility of parole for 25 years for this first-degree murder. And while the sentencing hearing has been set for September, an exact date hasn't been made public yet. But we will keep our audience updated via our social media accounts or if the um, final sentencing comes in before we upload this episode, we will add it right here. Hello, everyone. So just jumping in here post-recording this episode, it is currently October 3rd, 2023, and there has been an update in this case since we initially sat down to record this episode. So on September 28th, 2023, Beryl Musila was sentenced to life in prison. Now, there is a mandatory 25-year parole ineligibility period, so it will be the 2040s before she is able to begin applying for parole. This is obviously a huge deal for the family of Ronald Worsfold, who had the following to say to the Edmonton Journal. It's like a ton of weight off your shoulders. And that's what Stacey Worsfeld said outside of the courtroom, and that's Ronald's daughter. We're over six years now since his death, and that was a long, long journey. But to have this stage of this done, I am so grateful. Stacey Worsfold believes that Beryl murdered her father because she found out that Ronald was planning on no longer having her as part of his life. Quote, he was cutting her out of his life, and that's the real reason I believe this happened. I think she panicked because no one else wanted her. Stacey also said that she remains open in regards to forgiveness for Beryl, but said that there is no remorse and there is still no accountability on Beryl's end. Stacy continued and said that she is proud of her father and believes that she will be able to find peace in the future. She also had this to say, I remember him every morning when the Blue Jays come to get their peanuts. I remember him every time we have a thunderstorm because we used to sit on his balcony and watch the lightning and listen to the thunder rolling through next to the grain elevators. Every time I see a petrocan, every time I go to a hockey game, his memory is in so many places. The family of Ronald Worsfold is steadfast in their desire for the public to remember him as the kind and generous man that he was in his life. His daughter Stacy has been very vocal in the media, and in an article from Mountain View Today, she said, 
He helped so many people through the 30 years of managing that apartment building and was always giving people a hand up. I never thought helping someone would kill him. Stacy visits her father's grave more often than she wants to admit. She says she misses him terribly and that he was her best friend. Quote, My dad was the least judgmental person you'd ever meet. He'd never look down on anyone. He said everyone had a story and everyone had a path. He was just an amazing man and I am so proud to be his daughter. My dad would want us all to go on and be in joy and peace and have great lives and his death is not going to define him. So we'd ask our audience in Ronald's memory to do something nice for a stranger, or better yet, a senior. In 2020, many of us had our eyes open to the challenges facing seniors in Canada, whether it was inadequate care, internet scams, bullying, or violent attacks, it's clear we can do more for our seniors and elders. Whether it be something as simple as a passing smile or hello, or buying someone a coffee in your morning drive through we think it would be a great way to honor something that Ronald evidently valued in his life, kindness. That's all we have for this episode of TNTC+. Again, we will update everyone on the sentencing in September, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care of yourselves and each other. 